0: Hello, and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am, as always, your host, Kim. I have another serial killer for you guys today, but this one I totally remember from the 80s, not the 70s, which is when most of them seem to happen. I remember hearing about it, but I never really dug into it before. I don't do serial killer cases too much because they kill too many darn people, and it's hard to do an in-depth on each victim, which I think it should be the point, um, and too much of it is always about the killer. I started my true crime obsession with serial killers uh, once I discovered that sometimes quote unquote normal people commit murders, then I switched to an obsession with people who kill their own family members and loved ones. Uh, but I'm going to try and tackle this story because it has an interesting Calgary connection, and get ready because this one is brutal and the stuff that horror movies are made from. This is the murders committed by Charles Ng and Leonard Lake. On the afternoon of June 2nd, 1985, two men, one with a beard and rather scruffy looking, the other, a pudgy man with glasses of Asian descent, entered a hardware store on the south end of San Francisco. They were there to purchase a vice because theirs had broken. And by purchase, I mean that the pudgy man took it and walked out of the store without paying for it, went to put it in the trunk of the car that they had arrived in only it just so happened that an off-duty police officer observed what he was doing and went over to talk to him, and the man noticed him approaching and fled on foot. Then the scruffy bearded man came out and said, no, 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 don't worry, I paid for it. The officer asked for his ID and the man handed it to him, only his ID didn't really resemble the man in front of them who claimed to be Robin Stapley, a man that had been reported missing the week before from San Diego. In the bag the pudgy man had dropped was a gun with an illegal silencer. The scruffy man was taken to the police station to be questioned about his ID of the missing man and the gun that his friend had, and the man told him that his real name was Leonard Lake and that the man with him was Charles Ng. He then asked for a pencil and paper and a glass of water. Leonard scribbled a note to his wife, and then, as he had prepared for this day, had sewn a couple of cyanide pills into the collar of his shirt. He took them out, swallowed them before the police could stop him. He was rushed to Kaiser Hospital, but died four days later. The license plate on the 1980 Honda Prelude that Charles had put the vice in was registered to Leonard Lake, but the vehicle itself was registered to a man named Paul Costner. Paul had disappeared from San Francisco in November of the previous year. When examining the car, they noticed there was a bullet hole in the roof of the car and some blood spatter. There was also a stun gun. Under the passenger seat, they found an electric bill, or like a utility bill, in the name of Clarelyn Ballas, with an address. So they paid her a visit. Clarelyn, it turns out, was Leonard's ex-wife. She told Lieutenant Gerald McCarthy that her and Leonard had divorced three years before, but they were still friendly. And she mentioned that her family had this plot of land out in Wiselyville, which hadn't been used in years. There was a cabin out there. Perhaps Leonard had been staying there. So they asked her if she would be willing to take them out there and look around. No problem. And when they pulled up, it was pretty obvious that somebody had been living there. The first thing that he noticed was the vehicles that were parked on the land. There was a few of them. When running the registrations, a truck was registered to Robert Stapley and another car registered to Alani Bond, another man that had been reported missing. Lonnie Bond had rented a cabin not far from Clareland's family's cabin, and he had been staying there with his girlfriend, Brenda O'Connor, and their baby Robin was a friend of theirs and had been staying with them. They had all been reported missing, and the rented cabin was found empty and the rent not paid for the past few months. In a bedroom in the cabin was some video equipment that belonged to Harvey Dubbs. Harvey had a wife named Deborah and a baby son named Sean. They had also all been reported missing. And then they found the dudgeon. And we're going to come back to this. Leonard had led a complicated and rather disturbing life. He had been born in San Francisco, but his parents, I know his mom was named Gloria, but I don't know about his dad. They split up when he was little and him and his sisters went to live with their grandma. Grandma didn't have an issue with Leonard's habit for taking pictures of his sisters in the nude. Since she didn't do anything to stop that, he moved on to extorting them for sexual favors. He also developed a fascination with capturing mice and dissolving their little bodies in a variety of chemicals and watching the decomposition process. After high school he enlisted in the Marine Corps and served two tours in Vietnam as a radar technician, but he had a bit of a breakdown while he was there and diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder. He did get therapy and medication but was medically discharged in 1971. He then joined a commune out on a 5,600 acre settlement out near Capella in California, where he briefly married a woman, but it didn't work out for very long, especially when she found out he was making amateur porn involving bondage. A few years later, while still living on the commune, he met Claire Lynn, who was called Cricket by her friends, and they got married. It has been reported that Claire Lynn participated in some of Leonard's porn movies, uh, but she was never charged or implicated in any later crimes. Then, when the owner of the commune discovered that Leonard had been building a bunker in preparation for a nuclear holocaust, they were ordered off the commune. Uh, they then started to manage a ho- hotel, and in December 1981, he placed an ad in a survivalist magazine for What? I Don't Know, but Charles Ng answered the ad and quickly moved in with Clarelyn and Leonard. Charles was kind of on the run from the military police for stealing weapons and facing court-martial. He had escaped custody and made his way to California when he met Leonard and Claire Lynn. He had been born on Christmas Eve in 1960 in Hong Kong to rather wealthy parents. He then had three younger siblings and claims that his father was abusive. He grew up to be a loner and got expelled from school after school. By the age of 15 he was a compulsive shoplifter and somehow his dad got him a student visa to move him to California to go to Notre Dame of all places in 1978 but he dropped out of course and then got involved in a hit and run so to get out of trouble he enlisted in the marines using false documents. After a year in when he was caught stealing weapons from Pineo Bay's base, federal agents raided the mobile home that they were all living in in 1982 and found a stash of illegal weapons and explosives. Leonard was released on bail and, instead of facing charges, hid at Clareland's family's cabin. Charles was taken into custody by the Marines and pled guilty to charges of theft and desertion and served 18 months in Levensworth, in Kansas. He was then paroled and dishonorably discharged in 1984 and returned to California to reconnect with Leonard, who was divorced at this time. While he had been gone, Leonard had built himself a little dungeon, which was uncovered by detectives on that fateful June day in 1985. Investigators at the scene noticed a bunker built of cinder blocks. In this dark chamber was shackles bolted to the cinder block walls and a chair, The bunker had three rooms. One had a bed in it with a foam mattress and a bucket with rolls of toilet paper. This room had also had a one-way mirror installed so whoever was in it could be watched from one of the other rooms. On the property, they found a number of shallow graves containing a total of 40 pounds of charred and crushed up human remains. The remains were traced back to a total of 11 different missing persons. Two of the bodies had been gagged and then killed with gunshots to the head. They also found what could only be described as a treasure map with drawings that led them to two five-gallon buckets that were buried. In one of the buckets was the IDs and personal possessions of 25 different people and Leonard's journal spanning 1983 to 1984. There was also two videotapes. The contents of the videos have never been released because apparently they are beyond horrific, uh, but they basically play out the torture of two young women while Leonard sits in a lazy boy and tells them what he's about to do to them. Uh, in one of them he says, quote, "I believe that if I can, if I can construct a holding cell, a place where I can put such a woman, a facility that is so stark and so empty, so cold, so quiet, so totally removed from the world that I can quickly condition a young woman to cooperate with me fully." In the other video, Charles tells the woman, you can cry and stuff like the rest of them, but it won't do any good. We are pretty cold hearted, so to speak. Uh, Both videos show the woman tied to a chair. In the first tape, the woman asked, you know, like why they're doing this to her. And Leonard says, because I hate you. In the other tape, a woman is beaten and whipped so badly that there's no way that she could have survived. Rather than go through the list of evidence and try to piece together a chronological story and confuse you with a bunch of names, I want to go through each victim's story and just tell you who each person was in life, so bear with me a little bit here. There's a lot of them. And just a warning that a couple of them are children. Uh, Their names and stories are very important, and then I'm going to continue on with what happened. I will be right back after these brief messages. Donald Blake was Leonard's brother. He was 32. He had served in the army. He was living with their mom, Gloria, in San Francisco. In December of 1982, Leonard stopped by on his way up north and asked if Donald wanted to come with him. Donald had always been mistreated by Leonard, so I don't know why he agreed to go with him, uh, but he was never seen again. His mom reported him missing because Leonard said that he had no idea where he'd run off to. Leonard used Donald's ID to rent a house in Golden Gate Park in 1983. Uh, This was during the time that Charles was in Levensworth, so he wasn't implicated in this murder um, or in his murder, but Donald's body has never been found. Charles Gunner, he was 36, he had worked as a postal worker and drama coach in Morgan Hill. Charles had been Leonard and Claire Lynn's best man at their wedding. He was interested in survival skills and on May 22, 1983, Leonard invited him out to Las Vegas for some rest and relaxation after his divorce. Gunner left his two little girls with a babysitter and he was never seen again. Leonard showed up in his van a few days later and told the babysitter that Charles had run off with a woman. Jeffrey Askren, he was 30 and the son of Bruce and Doris from Sunnyvale, who once attended Mount Vernon High School and moved to California in 1978. He disappeared in April of 1984. His abandoned Honda was found in the West Point area of Alvarez County, close to the ranch in Wiselyville. Donald galetti was a 36-year-old radio DJ from San Francisco. He lived with his boyfriend, Richard uh, Richard Cariza. On July 11th, 1984, he answered a knock on the door and was immediately shot in the head by Charles Ng. His boyfriend, Richard, was also shot in the chest when he ran from the back room to see what all the commotion was about. He was left for dead, but miraculously survived and managed to call 911. Harvey, Deborah, and Sean Dubbs. Harvey was a 29-year-old video equipment salesperson married to Deborah, who was 33, and their baby son, Sean, who was only about a year old. Harvey had put an ad in the paper selling some equipment and on July 25th, the doorbell rang while Deborah was speaking with a friend on the phone. She told her friend that she had to go because two men that had answered the ad earlier had arrived. They were never seen again. Although sadly, Deborah is reported to be the woman in the second videotape that was sexually assaulted multiple times and beaten to death. Uh, One of their neighbors identified Charles Ng as the man leaving their house carrying a box and a vehicle leaving their driveway the next day. The neighbor, concerned, tried to follow the vehicle but lost them in traffic. A man calling himself Jim Bright called Harvey's job to tell him that he had moved to Washington. Um, There was a receipt found in Harvey's name for something on the ranch, but his body was never found, uh, neither was Little Sean's. If you are hoping that I'd be done soon with the list of names, nope, I still have a few more to go, and they are just the names that they can tie directly to Charles and Leonard. Randy Jacobson was 36, disappeared on October in October of 1984 from his rooming house in Hyatt-Ashbury after getting into some kind of business deal with Leonard. Uh, Rand- Randy was married to his wife, Cheryl Horror. Um, There is rumors that Cheryl disappeared as well, but her remains were not found and she is not listed as an official victim of the duo. Uh, Randy was referred to as PP3 in Leonard's journal. His body was found covered in lime and buried on the property. Uh, They weren't able to determine his cause of death. Paul Costner on November 2nd, 1984, the 40 year old was last seen in San Francisco. He was a used car dealer and his gold 1980 Honda Prelude also disappeared. He had placed the vehicle for sale in a paper and told his fiance that the guy that was going to buy it was a bit weird. Uh, He left their apartment at 730 that night to meet them and never returned. Uh, This was the Honda that Lake uh, was arrested driving in June. Clifford Parentu was 23. He was a mover with Dennis Moving Company in San Francisco. Charles Ng was one of his co-workers with whom he frequently argued. Uh, he was last seen on January 20th. His body has never been found, but some of his belongings were found on the ranch. Jeff Gerald, he was 25. He also worked with Charles Ng at the Moving Company um, by day and then played drums for a band called Crash and Burn by Night. He disappeared February 24th, 1985, after telling a buddy that he was going to go help Charles move. Kathleen Allen, 18, and her boyfriend, Michael Carroll, 23, were living together in a motel room. On the night of April 12th, 1985, Michael told Kathleen he was heading out on an errand around 10 p.m. and never returned. A couple of days later, Kathleen got a call at the Safeway where she worked that her boyfriend had been involved in a shooting. So she took off from work in a hurry and was last seen running out of the grocery store into the parking lot to talk to a guy with a beard, later determined to be Leonard. Kathleen was mentioned by name, but not seen in one of the videotapes found and her last paycheck was sent to the address that she forwarded to near Wiselyville. Michael's driver's license was found inside the cabin on the ranch. Uh, Robin Scott Stapley was, was a 26 year old who normally went by Scott Uh, He was living in San Francisco with Lonnie Bond, 27, and his girlfriend, Brenda O'Connor, 19, and their little guy, two-year-old Lonnie Jr. Lonnie Sr. wasn't a fan of Leonard Lake, who lived in the neighboring cabin. They found him obnoxious and very rude and demented. He would fire his guns on the property at all hours of the day and night and gave Brenda the creeps, which probably had a lot to do with him always asking her to pose naked for photos of him. On April 19th, Robin was visiting and Lonnie went outside with him to have words with Leonard about this. Robin and Lonnie disappeared right after that. Lonnie Jr. also disappeared and Brenda was seen in one of the videos forced at gunpoint to perform sex acts on both Leonard and Charles. Robin's ID was on Leonard when he was finally arrested. Uh, that was a very long list. Attorney General at the time, John Van Vandekamp, called it one of the worst cases in California history. Uh, However, a total of 21 missing persons were tied to the ranch. Uh, They were able to locate two women that were found alive, but there are more than on this list uh, that they believe to be victims of Leonard and Charles. Um, Someone named D. Myers, 25, of Saratoga, a piece of his identification was found, but they weren't able to locate any of his relatives to verify if he was alive or dead. There was also the remains of two men of African-American descent that were never identified. Um, okay, so a lot of gruesome and disturbing evidence was found on this creepy ranch, tying Leonard and Charles Ng to these lovely people's murders. Obviously, Leonard was dead and Claire Lynn didn't know anything, or at least asked for blanket immunity to help the police with what she did know, and She didn't have any consequences from it. Little is known about Clarolyn and what happened with her after all of this. Um, She likely changed her name. But Charles was missing and needed to be found. Now, fortunately, Charles Ng is a bit of an idiot. On July 6, 1985, Sean Doyle was working as a security guard at the Hudson's Bay Company in uh, in downtown Calgary. Now, for non-Canadians, the Hudson's Bay, we call it just the Bay, is a department store here. Uh, I mean, it's more than that. It has a long, deep-rooted Canadian settler history, but for today, it's just a department store. And in walked Charles Ng. Doyle had no idea who he was or that he was high on the list of the most wanted. He just knew that he was trying to shoplift and tried to apprehend him. Only Charles pulled out a gun and shot Doyle through his hand. Charles had made his way to Calgary, probably by hitchhiking where his Uh, where he had a sister here and built himself a makeshift tent in Fish Creek Park. Fortunately, in 1985, I was still living on the north end of town and nowhere near Fish Creek Park, which is where I now live. Uh, He was charged with attempted murder and shoplifting and given a six-year sentence here to be served in Edmonton. There were a couple of issues, though, in that Charles wasn't actually a U.S. citizen. He was only there on a long-expired student visa. So there was a lot of legal mumbo jumbo to work through. Work through. He was finally ordered deported upon his release for the Canadian charges, and then extradited back to California, which is a death penalty state. In 1991, he tried unsuccessfully to fight the extradition because Canada has a rule that they don't extradite people to a country where they would face the death penalty. But somehow they managed to get around that, and the fact that. Technically, he could have been deported to China and not the U.S., but fortunately they found a way to get him into a California court in which he went on trial for 12 counts of first-degree murder. Uh, But Charles decided to try and delay matters as much as possible by filing a number of ridiculous pretrial motions and tried to sue the state of California for his glasses not being the right prescription, his food being too cold, and that he didn't have a proper place to fold origami in his cell. All the while, in remand awaiting trial at Folsom Prism, he was squirreling away maps and fake IDs for an escape. And then, of course, he had to fire his lawyers. He finally went through a total of 10 of them, but filed a malpractice suit against most of them after firing them. Finally, he decided to represent himself. I mean, it worked for Ted Bundy. Oh, wait. No, it didn't. Anyways, finally, on October 1998, the trial that went on for four months was started, Charles claimed that he was just a bystander to all the murders and hadn't done anything. He depended on Leonard and saw him as a father figure. But the videotapes and evidence told a different story, and while taking a stand in his own defense, he was shown a photo of himself in prison with cartoons that he had drawn of the victims hanging on his cell wall. He also got a hold of the personal phone number of one of the jurors and called them to try to force a mistrial. But it didn't work. In February 1999, Charles was convicted of 11 of the 12 murders, uh, six men, three women, and two male infants. He was found not guilty of Paul Costner's murder. Uh, No one's really sure why they decided that. His trial cost the state of California $20 million, the most expensive in the state's history, twice that of even O.J. Simpson. On July 28, 2022, his sentence was upheld, He still has a few other appeals to go, and as of the time that I'm writing this, he is still on death row at San Quentin. As of today, the Department of Justice is hopeful that that there is enough usable DNA to run comparisons until all of the victims are known, but unfortunately there are too many urgent cases in front of them. Uh, But there are about a hundred more that they want to categorize them and return what they can to the families uh, to give them a chance to properly intern them. And that was the reign of terrible murders of Charles Ng and Leonard Lake. Why do they have to kill the babies? They can't identify you, just drop them off at a doorstep. I don't get it. And I don't really understand the robbery and then murder part of it either. And they didn't even live well off their stolen stuff. Like they were living in a shack. I don't think I'll ever have any hope of understanding serial killers. They are just too warped anxiety and depression from trauma I can understand, even addiction issues. Something bad happens, I will eat the contents of the fridge. This I understand. But something bad happens, I'm going to take my neighbor's cat and dissect it and throw it in a vat of acid. I struggle with understanding how that relieves anxiety or takes someone to their happy place. Anyways, I'm going to be back again next week with another case that I don't understand. In the meantime, you know what to do. Rate, review, sign up for exclusive content if you haven't already. And follow me on Instagram. I do post some good stuff there. Uh, I'm wanting to get a bit more interactive with you as well. I'm not sure what that's going to look like. Maybe a Facebook group or maybe take some listener questions. We'll see what I do. In the meantime, feel free to reach out. I still try to get to your emails and messages in a fairly timely manner. As always, thank you so much for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.